2: Welcome to the show as we close out the week this week. This is the Friday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we try to do every week at 4 o'clock on AM 630, the Word, is take your phone calls and answer Bible questions and life questions and whatever else is on your heart and mind, what we believe as Christians, why we believe it. Uh, All you have to do is call us. You can do that by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can also email questions to us by emailing questions at CalvarySA.com uh, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I remind you of this every day. The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. You can use your hands-free feature. There will be one banner. Touch that and then the rest you can be uh, driving and talking safely. Uh, one more time for our main number. It's 340-9585. Well, we're all in the precipice of a weekend where we get to serve the Lord, we're going to be, um, I'm going to be teaching the prodigal in Luke uh, chapter 15, just we're going to take this Sunday to talk about only the, the prodigal who run, runs away next next Sunday, we'll talk about uh, his brother who is the real problem child in the crowd, and this is always a fun passage to teach, but it's also just a little sad because we all know prodigals. Uh, if you have a prodigal, uh, if your heart has been broken, um, tune in. You can watch on com. Um, if you can't get here to be with us. But uh, it will be a message I think worth listening to. I've asked my church already to pray, so I'll ask this audience to pray. Uh, we've asked our church to bring unsaved family members, to bring their own prodigals, to to um, uh, bring co-workers, anybody that's not saved that that they've been praying for. Um, bring them invite them to come to church Uh, I think God wants to pour out his spirit on people so uh, that's our Sunday tonight Uh, we also have a New Testament Bible study I'm going to be in the second half of Hebrews chapter 10 Uh, it's a good study so uh, that's tonight at 7 o'clock here at the church wherever it is you go to church remember two things one you are the church you don't go to a church you are the church and then when you get here, be sure that you've offered your body as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Based on everything he's done to you, this is my paraphrase of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, based on his goodness and his faithfulness, remember that you're a servant. And when you go to church, ask God to sort of give you some divine appointments, give you a, a discerning heart, a discerning eye for those who are hurting, those who are lonely. I promise you, God will have you bump into those people you can minister. Church becomes a completely different thing when you're actively involved in your role being in church. Okay, well, let's get to questions while we wait for your phone calls. Uh, Here is a question from Luis. He said, why didn't Paul tell others the things he saw when he went to the third heaven? Well, Luis, the answer to that is pretty easy. He says man's not permitted to tell. In other words, he had a clear memory of the things that he saw. Those would be impressions that would never, ever leave him. But he didn't tell anybody about them because he said man wasn't permitted to tell. Obviously, that means God showed him what he needed to see. He said he saw inexpressible things. But he also said, don't tell anybody. Now, these are things, the things of heaven. I'm, you know, foolish to try to defend why God would tell us to do something or not to do something. But clearly heaven is something that we can't describe adequately while we're here on earth. And heaven is one of those things that Jesus wants us to understand by faith as our born-again birthright. So what we do, Louise, is we just trust what Paul has told us. Now remember, Paul could say at the end, I've fought the good fight, I've finished my race, He could say, there's in store for me a crown of righteousness. We know that he'd seen the glory, the full glory of heaven. And God used that episode to motivate him to serve with all of his strength, holding nothing back. That's what heaven is. It's not a deferred hope. Heaven is our reward, and heaven is our motivation. Being with Jesus forever, having a a, a transformed body, having only good in us. No sin nature, no temptation, no tears, no pain, no anything. That's our reward. And every day we are here. Some days are... Fun days, easy days, other days are really hard days, some days are sad days. We deal with temptation, we deal with tests and trials all the time. But we do that by looking to heaven. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, keep your mind and your heart on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So keep my heart on the things above, those are the things of Jesus and his kingdom. The the mind, the heart is the place of affection. The mind is the place of decision. And God said, I want people to know what heaven is like by faith. He tells us as much as he can or as much as we need him to tell us. But he doesn't tell us everything. And that's why Louis Paul couldn't tell others what he'd seen in heaven. Here is another question from Matthew. He says, "Uh, I have been having health problems. Does that mean my faith is weak? You know, Matthew, when I saw your question the other day, uh, I get angry, not not in a sinful way, but uh, I get angry because we have a, a series of churches, a spectrum of churches that are so False in their teaching, in their doctrinal positions, and sadly, there are people that teach that. Well, all you have to do is have the faith, and God will heal you. He has to heal you because He promised He would. Two things: He didn't promise He would, and Jesus, you remember, said we only need a tiny bit of faith. Mustard seed faith, and when we connect that to our healing, so Matthew, no doubt, somebody at the church you attend. told you that if your faith was stronger God would have healed you I'm telling you that's a lie it's from the pit hell it is the opposite of the character and nature of God I'm sorry that you've been having health problems that's what happens in a fallen world Matthew and I won't go on and on about this because I don't want to bore anybody to tears. But for the last two years, I've been going through some health problems as well. A really weird thing happened in my heart. I, I not a heart attack, and I didn't have any heart issues at all. A virus attacked my heart, and suddenly my whole world was turned upside down. Now I'm better now, so um, thank the Lord for doctors and for technology and for medicine. But the first thing the enemy said, even to me, now when I say even to me, it's not because I'm something special, because I'm pastor on. But I know these things, and I've taught these things, and I've counseled people through these things for years and years, and still the first thing the enemy said to me, wasn't about my faith being weak. What he said to me was that God's angry with me. And there are times, Matthew, when we're in a really vulnerable place. Now, I never believed for a moment God was angry with me, but when when that lie from Satan came into my heart, my first thing was, Jesus, I know that's not you. I know that's not true. So no matter how I feel, no matter what the doctors are saying, I'm going to be with you. If I'm with you now on earth and serving you, great. If I'm with you in heaven because I didn't make it that's better yet but I'm with you so when the enemy is lying to you when false teachers are lying to you about having weak faith please understand that if your healing depended on your faith that would make you stronger than God able to frustrate the will of God for your lives now let me also say this um You know, we open our Bibles and we read about miraculous healings. I think sometimes because we immediately apply those things, why doesn't God do that today? The answer, Matthew, is because my ways are not His ways. His ways are above my ways. And there are times when me being healed or you being healed or anybody else being healed isn't consistent with His will. And typically these Paul's teaching prosperity, health and wealth churches. They'll teach you that it's God's perfect will that everybody gets gets healed. By his stripes we are healed. That proves it that we're healed, but that's not what we're healed from in Isaiah 53. Sickness happens. It is rare that God intervenes. And yet, as I've said before, in response to similar questions, we're going to be amazed at how often God didn't intervene. We didn't even know it. I just taught Matthew on uh, Wednesday night. You can go to uh, calvaryessay.com and listen to the Bible study. But we talked uh, about Hezekiah, uh, who was sick unto death. And uh, Isaiah was sent by the Lord to tell him, oh, you're going to die. And then uh, he turned uh, to God. Hezekiah did, prayed, repented. Um. Repentant of his proud heart. God stopped Isaiah in his tracks and now go back and tell him that I've heard his prayer. I'm going to add 15 years to his life. That doesn't happen very often. In fact, almost never happens. That's why it's by definition, a miracle. Matthew, sometimes we just get sick. My final thought on this Matthew is this. We've had some people in our church, a couple of them happening right now who have suffered so much with health issues, so much. And these men and women are so faithful, they have been so consistent and, and brought honor to God, even in their sickness. I think sometimes we, we have a tendency to think, well, God, if, because they were good, you should heal them. But it's just not always God's will. So, Matthew, I hope that helped. 340-9585 for your live calls. Now, Fridays are usually a day where our phone traffic is light. But remember, if you've got a question, we'd love to hear it. Here is a question from Alex. He says, Pastor, on since the apostles kept Saturday worship in the early church, why don't we? I believe that Sunday is a pagan creation designed to make us stumble. Alex, the apostles didn't keep Saturday worship, the Sabbath worship. All you have to do is, is read the book of Acts and you'll find that they met together on the first day of the week. That was the day in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. In other words, they set the the uh, collection up. They, they would, would do that in the fellowship. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now that's fellowship, that's communion. It says, Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. So you see, Alex, um, the premise of your question is incorrect, because the apostles didn't keep Sabbath worship on the Jewish Sabbath, the Apostle Paul, when he went into a new city, would go into the Jewish synagogue. Why? Because that's where he'd find Jews when he was sent to Jews first, then to Gentile. So when you ask a question and accuse faithful first century church apostles and prophets and pastors of being celebrants of a pagan creation, It's clear, Alex, you're not rightly dividing the word of God. Remember, Jesus canceled the old covenant. Jews were required under the old covenant to keep the Jewish Sabbath. Jesus canceled the old covenant and brought to us a far greater, wonderful covenant I call it the covenant of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely undeserving. But, um, Alex, inside, deep inside, I think you know better. A pagan creation. Can you imagine accusing Paul of honoring a pagan creation? Or Peter, accusing him of celebrating a pagan creation. We need to be careful with what we say and how we exegete the Word of God. Linda says, um, Pastor Ron, do you think anyone involved with abortion is guilty of murder? I'm talking about women uh, who have them, the doctors who do them, the nurses who assist, uh, etc. Um, Linda, yes, and and um, with, with this qualification. There are differing degrees of killing people in our Bible. Um, Cities of refuge were set up so that if a man killed somebody accidentally, um, then he could go and be safe until his case could be heard. Uh, We would call that manslaughter uh, as opposed to murder. Um, The act of Abortion is clearly murder. We're knit in our mother's womb, Jesus said. We know that life begins at conception and not when the baby is out of the mother's womb. Uh, I do believe that doctors who know what abortion is uh, are guilty of murder. I also believe that the women who have the abortions and usually because of different reasons, their motivations are different. A lot of times they're afraid. They don't have any answers. Um, I, I'm, I'm not ready for a baby yet. So while, while the baby's being murdered, I think a lot of times that would not fall under the category of being guilty of murder, but perhaps of manslaughter or something lesser. Um, nurses and people who assist, they know what it's like. So yeah, they've got blood on their hands. But to say they're guilty of murder, thou shalt not murder, the law said. Um, I think those are situations that we only know if we can be like God and know the heart of those people. Is the act of abortion always murder, the willful taking of a human life? And in this case, an innocent human life, the answer is yes. But we have to be able to, to um, finesse sort of the difference. I, I committed an act of murder, but it was more like manslaughter, um, involuntary in some cases. Um, and, and we've got to be able to sort of traverse those difficult things. So, Linda, I hope that's what you're thinking about. But let me also say this, and I just thought of this because um, almost every time I get a question like that, I want to be sure that I give this as part of my answer as well. Linda, if you are calling because you've had an abortion and somebody told you you're guilty of murder or the enemy is convicting you, I want you to understand that uh, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. And if you've had an abortion, if you've repented of it, if you've asked Jesus to forgive you, well, then you're not guilty of anything. Yes, a life was taken, but you're not guilt anymore because Jesus paid the price for that guilt. And uh, one time I was doing a, uh, a Bible study on um, these kinds of issues, and the issue of abortion came up, and I said abortion is murder, and then I tried to explain that, that in Christ even that sin is forgiven. And then I said something, I said, you know, if, if you've had an abortion, you're going to see your child in heaven. He or she's going to know you and you're going to know them. And I had a lady come up completely undone at the end of the service. She said, I don't want to see my child. I don't want him to look at me and know what I did to him. And, and in this case, it was a, a, a hymn. I don't want to know any of those things. I'm so ashamed. How could he ever forgive me? And I tried to explain as best I could. Well, that's what heaven's love is all about. So, Linda, you or anybody else in the audience, if you have an abortion, it was a bad thing, a terrible thing to do. But it is a sin covered by the blood of Jesus. If you're a born-again Christian, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not a born-again Christian then the feeling of guilt is a good thing because then you're guilty. And because you're guilty, you need your sin to be atoned for. Jesus did that. And everybody in this audience who's had an abortion, came close to having an abortion, those sins are wiped away by the blood of Jesus Christ. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Jimmy on line one from San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
1: Uh, yes, Pastor Ron. Uh, I have uh, these two men that witnessed in our prayer group that they've seen uh, demons. And one claims that there was a dog demon into his room. And another one was uh, like a person and had red eyes. Now, I've never seen a demon. I've seen angels, but I've never seen a demon. I don't know what. Is that, like, true? Or. I know they exist. You know, I know the Bible says they exist on earth. I don't know what to say. I don't be playing all the games. I don't know if they're safe. Uh,
2: Jimmy, a couple of things. Um, you know, our. our images that we have in our mind of demons uh, is is largely formed by what we see. Um, um, we've had this issue with a lot of of uh, men especially, but, but video gamers, and there's these evil things out there and they've got red eyes and they're glowing like fire. And uh, we see bull-like forms or dog-like forms, even goat-like forms. In video games, I think a lot of times... Um, that 's how those um, images are going to manifest themselves, but it 's based on what we 've seen it 's something in our subconscious it 's not something that's genuine. Um, I have seen a lot of people a lot of people uh, thankfully that 's not true uh, i've seen dozens of people uh, over my 20 years in Christ who have been demon possessed um, but i 've never seen a demon. Uh, and, and I think it's probably a, a, an overactive imagination when people say they saw a demon. Uh, I have smelled the presence of a demon. Uh, I have heard audibly the presence of a demon. Um, I have felt a blackness um, surrounding me at times, uh, which was identified to me as a demon, uh, identified to me by the Holy Spirit. Um so demons are always around they're real they're everywhere uh some are super super powerful and others are just regular ordinary demons whatever that means um but but most of the time when people see these images uh, there's one of two things they're either video gamers or they've been watching really really bad stuff and it's settled into their subconscious or they're they're using drugs and and especially, Jim, have had people who are regular users of marijuana um, who, uh, who who claim to have these visions of demons. Uh, and my response to them was, well, stop smoking dope and and you'll have clarity, you'll understand. Start spending time in your Bible and you'll understand. I think one of the things, and, and whether these people are believers or not is not the issue, because we can all see it based on, on how we're spending our time. Um, but one of the issues that we've got to understand is that, that um, the, the, the demons, as frightening as they are, uh, they can't touch us without God's direct permission. They cannot. take can huff and puff and threaten to blow your house down, but they can't do anything else. So that's my answer, Jimmy. Thanks very much for the call. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 or 877-630-KSLR. Please call. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the program. Our final 30 minutes of the week, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I, I neglected to do this at the beginning of the program, but let me uh, ask everybody to keep the people in New Orleans uh, in our prayers, in fact, the, the Louisiana coast, um, the the storm there is strengthening. They are already underwater, and I think it's going to be a very scary night for them and, and, and a scary day tomorrow. So please, please, please keep them in your prayers. Additionally, um, reminder, we have Saturday morning corporate prayer here at Calvary Chapel at 930 in the morning here at the Sanctuary. Um, you don't have to come to Calvary Chapel if you just want to come pray with your brothers and sisters. We will be here from nine thirty to ten thirty um, uh, corporate prayer, and the Lord seems to be doing something really neat. So um, we will invite you to come. Here's a question was sent in, uh, actually more of a comment from Mark on our mobile app uh, regarding an earlier question. He says, uh, regarding an earlier question about having to worship on Saturday, if I may add this question to that caller. Caller said that Sunday is pagan, designed to make us stumble. What exactly is supposed to make us stumble? Is God truly going to punish us for worshiping on the wrong day, since we're to worship him daily? Mark, you see, that's the difference. Your, your comment and, and the question uh, differ because one of you understands the new covenant and the other one doesn't. You're the legalist. And whether it's a Seventh-day Adventist or any other legal... No, we, we're, we're Sabbath worshipers. They simply don't understand their Bible. They don't understand. They're unwilling to, to, to work hard to, to rightly divide the Word. And, uh, and you know what? If they want to worship on Saturday, that's okay. Because as you rightly point out, Mark, um, we're supposed to worship Him every day. We're going to worship God tomorrow in prayer. That's Saturday. Saturday. Now, we're not doing it because it's the Jewish Sabbath. We're doing it because we don't have time to do corporate prayer on Sunday. On Sunday, we're going to worship him in his word and in music. We're going to worship him in fellowship. We're going to worship him, um, encouraging the brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then hopefully Monday, my heart's going to be in the right place. I'm going to worship him in everything that I do. So every single day, that's what Paul writes over and over and over. We belong to him seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And we understand that we get it. So um, those, I repeat this mark from my earlier answer, those that consider uh, Sunday worship as pagan um, simply haven't purpose in their heart to read their Bibles. Here's a question from our email inbox from Scott. He says this. I love this question, Scott. The Psalm 93 verse one. Here's what it says. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Does that answer the issue of climate change today? In other words, the world won't change as drastically as it's predicted because God is in control. Am I right, Scott? Not only are you right. Let me add the first three verses of Psalm 46. Let me add Jesus in the Olivet Discourse when he says that he is going to come back and set his feet physically on the Mount of Olives, a physical location that when he returns, Israel, Jerusalem in particular, is going to exist. Now we've got all these chicken littles. The sky is falling, the sky is falling, and their new crusade is against climate change. I actually heard yesterday, read, I didn't hear it, I read it, um, Miley Cyrus, that that great theologian, that wonderful woman of God, that great scientist, and I say all of that with tongue firmly planted in cheek. Now, I love Miley Cyrus, I, I, I pray she could save. But she said in an interview that I read yesterday in the news that she's elected not to have a child, because it would be so unfair to bring a child into a world that's going to cease to exist. Can you see the enemy in that, Scott? The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Jesus, the heaven and earth may pass away, and it will eventually, but my word will never change. My word will never pass away. And All we have to do is not give in to this hysteria that unbelievers fall into. Let me also say this, God, as you know. Those who are climate change alarmists are men and women who begin their study of what they call, what they view science with this one foundation and that foundation there is no God now if that's their foundation we know that we can discount anything and everything that they say I was watching a news program and they had an interview with a scientist and uh, it was a topic that I thought was going to be interesting for a moment so I'm tuning in to try to hear was being said and the uh, reporter asked him a question and the scientist responded with what will well, you know for hundreds of thousands of years we've been dealing with these same questions and I tuned away because I was no longer interested in what he had to say because what he had to say demonstrated that he had no knowledge of God at all And that's what we've got to be as Christians. And this is one of those those topics the enemy's going to try to use to scare us. You remember Y2K? It was a completely different thing, but it was going to be horrible. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. Climate change. Jesus said he's coming back. Jesus said Jerusalem's going to be there. Jesus named the Mount of Olives. And that means, as you suggested, the world's not going to change as drastically as it's predicted. This is absolute lunacy, Scott. And the uh, sad thing is that we're buying it. Now, I hope Christians aren't buying it. But it's sad. we got a whole generation of kids growing up terrified because the world is going to end. The world is going to end. Well, our Bible says that Jesus holds everything together. But Jesus is the force that keeps things from falling apart. And we either believe that or we don't. In him, all things hold together. So Scott, share the message. It should give you an opportunity to witness about Jesus to a lot of people. Three four zero ninety is a question from Sarah. Uh, she asks, uh, what is Lordship Salvation, and what does it mean for me individually? Um, Lordship Salvation, let me, let me discuss it generally, and then I'll I'll, I'll apply it to you individually, Sarah. Uh, Lordship Salvation simply means that if Jesus is not your Lord, he cannot also be your Savior. You know, we have a mushy, gooey Jesus who loves me and died for my sins, and Loves me the way I am and understands my weaknesses. Um, that isn't the real Jesus. And while all of that true is true, He loves you the way you are. He He died for your sins, but remember, He's Lord and Savior. He can't be one or the other. He is both, or He is neither. And Lordship salvation, um, Sarah. This whole concept was introduced by John MacArthur. In a book, the book, uh, uh, the, the, the Gospel According to Jesus was the name of it. And he rubbed so many people the wrong way. It, it was perceived as a work salvation type thing. That's not it. John MacArthur was just saying, and I've got differences with John MacArthur, but this isn't one of them, that if you know Jesus, then you're going to live like you know Jesus. If you know Jesus, you're going to change because he's doing the changing. And so the whole idea of Lordship salvation is, is he your Lord? Now, Lord means he's in charge. He's the boss. It means that we have to do what he tells us to do. It doesn't mean that he kills us if we don't. But it simply means, like the Apostle Paul said, uh, I, I hate myself because what I want to do, I can't do what I don't want to do. That's what I keep on doing. But no one would argue that Jesus was Paul's Lord. It just means that when we fall short, what we have to do is run to Jesus in repentance and let him purify us from all unrighteousness and fill us afresh with his Holy Spirit. So, Lordship Salvation is just that. It's not the negative thing that somebody uh, has, has uh, in response to MacArthur's book, I said, no, that's a work salvation, not that at all. Um, It's it's also, I think, Sarah, and I'm I'm in the Gospel of Luke, so I'm just going to use a chapter that I'm familiar with uh, because we just finished it, Luke chapter 14, one of the really, really great and important chapters in in the the entire Gospel. Um, um, What it means for you individually is Jesus is calling you to a radical discipleship. He's calling you to forsake everything else. He's calling you to be committed to him, heart and soul. It's a life that gets up every day and says to him, Lord, what about me and what about today? It's not wrong to make plans, but it's wrong if we don't give Jesus the opportunity to to interrupt our plans. I certainly wasn't intending to be a pastor when I met Jesus, but Because of the authority of forgiving me of my sins. He then put himself in a position of being my Lord. And what it meant to me was his will, not my will, had to be done in my life. And so the idea of Lordship Salvation is Jesus saying, Be radical for me. Tell others about me. Be active in sharing your faith. Paul says, if you're not... It's because you don't have an understanding, a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. So this is a call to radical discipleship, meaning every day is his, every minute of every day is his. And when we forget that, then we say, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Get me back. I was praying this morning. It's been a long week for me, and I was tired this morning, had a really tough night, sleeping bad dreams and things. And my mind is wandering. I'm trying to pray, and my mind is just wandering. And I I kept saying over and over, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I don't want to talk about that person or think about this thing. I want to talk to you now. And I do that over and over and over. But you see, that's sort of what recalibrates my day. It helps me focus on being with him. And so, Sarah, what it means for you and for me is... Jesus is calling us to a radical commitment that too few in our church world are willing to pay. hope that helps. Marcus is asking me, is Seventh-day Adventism a cult? Uh, Marcus, uh, about half the time it is. Uh, Not every Seventh-day Adventist is in a cult, um, but there are many Seventh-day Adventist churches that are um, uh, it's a it's a, a, a heresy of a work salvation. It's a it's as I already explained in the earlier question about the Sabbath worship. Uh, it's 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 an indication that the Bible's not being taught. It's it's people that say no, I'm okay because I keep the Sabbath. That's exactly what the people that murdered Jesus kept saying. And so, it's a cult in those SDA churches who would say, for example, if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're not saved. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you're demon-possessed. Uh, those kind of things. So yeah, it, it can be a cult. And while there are um, legalistic yet orthodox SDA churches, uh, there are an equal number or even greater a number of SDA churches that are uh, are very much a cult. Uh, Marcus, let me uh, recommend uh, somebody for you. Uh, Calvary Chapel, we have a pastor. His name is Mark Martin. He's in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, he's a guy that's had so many physical issues, but but got a huge church and God's done a neat work. He's a good guy. Uh, but he comes out of a, a an SDA background. And on his website, all you have to do is Google uh, Mark Martin, Calvary Chapel in Phoenix. And uh, he has lots and lots and lots of of resources and studies regarding Seventh Day Adventism, and it would, uh, I think, benefit you a great deal to go there and check it out. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls. Let's go to Cindy on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
0: Hi, Pastor Ron. Now, in Psalm 75, verse 10, it says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted
2: up. Now, when I was reading this, I envisioned, you know, when you're a kid, you see the pictures of the devil and he has these little horns on his head. (laughs) You never see angels or cherubs with little horns. So that that kind of confused me, but then earlier it says in verse
0: four, to the arrogant I say, boast no more, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horns, do not lift your horns against heaven, do not speak with an outstretched neck. So today I was thinking about it, and I'm thinking maybe it's not talking about horns on your head but a but a uh, wind <laughs> instrument, so I'll just let you untangle this, and I'll get off the phone and listen.
2: Thank you, Cindy. Great question. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a wind instrument either, so it's not the kind of horns. Whenever you see, especially in the poetry books, but but you'll also see it in the prophetic books when God talks about horns. Um, horns is a, is a symbol for power. So when he says, I'm going to cut off the horns of all the wicked, it, it simply means he's going to remove their power. But the power, the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. They will be restored. It's like Jesus saying, the meek will inherit the earth. Or, or those who uh, who uh, mourn will be exalted. So um, when you see horns used in the Old Testament, uh, it's always symbolic of power. And what he's saying is that the wicked may look like they've got all the power now. And if we look around our world, Cindy, the way it is, um, that's how it looks sometimes. But uh, the real power comes from the throne of God and Jesus will be cutting off thorns. horns. So this isn't horns on the head. This isn't horns that are musical instruments. This is just a very poetic way of speaking uh, about the power uh, here on earth. And that's nothing more to that than that. So instead of horns, if you substitute the word power, then the context makes really, really good sense. Good question, Cindy. Thank you. Bruce says... I'm going to get in trouble on this one, Bruce. Bruce says, Pastor Ron, what would you like to see change in the way worship is done in modern churches? First, let me say, Bruce, I'm not qualified as an expert in what is or isn't good worship. Um, I know when worship is good for me. Uh, I know... um, This question, I think, was precipitated by a a question earlier in the week that we had. Um, I know when I'm worshiping and my heart needs to be right before the Lord, we worship. And I don't mean by that I'm getting goosebumps. Um, um, But but what I would want, you know, there's a song that we sing. Um, uh, I want to return to a heart of worship. And in one of the lines, it says, Lord, forgive us for the things we've made it. And, Bruce, I think my initial response would be Lord, forgive us for what we've made worship. We've turned worship into a show. We turn worship into smoke from the stage or a light show. We've turned worship into a performance. We've turned worship into lyrics that are inconsistent and some some cases completely contradict the word of God. And and that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see Christians in worship not be so moved emotionally as they would rather be moved spiritually. Worship isn't about getting goosebumps, it's not about crying, it's not about raising our hands although those things may happen. Worship is about honoring God for who he is. So that's one of the things. The other thing, and I'm going to mention two things here. The other thing uh, primarily is that um, I would I would want the lyrics of the songs to focus less on what we will do or we have done for God and focus more on what he's done for us. One clear line drawn in the sand, Bruce, that that is easy to to see is um, you look at the old hymns, and those are songs about God. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that only old hymns should be sung. But one of the reasons there's so much power, and there's so much longevity in those old hymns, is because those songs are about God. It is well with my soul. A mighty fortress is our God. And a lot of the new songs are about what we will do for God. I will love you forever. i got to tell you, Bruce, when, when we sing songs like that, in my participation in worship, I'm changing the lyrics in my head and heart. I say, I'll worship you forever. I will serve you forever. I'm saying, oh, well, please, Lord, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, in your name and for your glory. So I'd like to see gifted Christian writers. We had a, a, a man call yesterday on the program, and and he's a writer and a singer. Um, everybody gifted in that manner starts singing about Jesus again not about what we're going to do for Jesus, not about our motives for serving Jesus. No turning back. Can you imagine singing that in the middle of backsliding? So we we just have to have lyrics that are consistent with the heart of worship. Finally, and this is my pet peeve, Bruce. Worship leaders need to stop talking in worship. You know, they'll do a song and then there will be music kind of strumming in the background and the worship leader will say, "Um, Lord, we just come to you today to worship you, to, to, to abandon ourselves to you. Oh Lord, lead us deeper into worship. Um, They need to shut up. My worship leader, when we, approached him the very first time about doing worship. Now he's a pastor at our church and one of the dearest jesus lovingest people in the world. I said, you can talk when you welcome people and you can talk when you pray after worship is over, at the end of worship, but let's fill all of the time in between with real worship. And we've got this sort of drippy, emotional conversation going on. And it drives me crazy. It breaks the tone of worship. So, Bruce, those are the things that I would like to see change in the way worship is done. And again, I want to mention that I am a person who has no musical ability whatsoever. Um... Um, If I sang into a microphone out loud, people would cry, not because it's so emotional, but because it was so awful. So, um, I don't have much qualification in terms of establishing what is and isn't good worship. I know it when I see it. Last thing I'll say is this, Bruce. When we go other places, uh, to conferences or things like that, the single most difficult thing that I have to sit through is worship. Because all those other things happen regularly and I just keep thinking, oh Lord, I can't wait to get back to my church. So those are the things verse. Do I have time? Oh, okay. I thought I had more time for one more question, but I don't. Hey, uh, remember this week as you go to church, uh, the Lord is going to have something for you to do. Uh, report for duty to say Lord whatever you want I want it too offer your body as a living sacrifice and as you go to church remember there's somebody in that body who needs to hear encouraging words, Jesus words from you it'll change your perspective in church Lord willing I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word have a great weekend I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.